Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, we will go ahead and read the whole chapter, but we will focus in on the first nine verses, since the rest of it is pretty much description of what we're reading within those first nine verses. Leviticus is indeed one of the books that we need to address as we are going over kind of a survey of some of the things that we find within the New Testament. We're looking at them in the Old Testament so that when we get to those passages, we understand the reference, we understand the significance of what it is that we're reading of, uh, whether it's direct quotes or it's going over certain circumstances that we read of in the New Testament. Um, we, We need to understand it to the best of our ability that we understand the full meaning when the writers of Scripture in the New Testament bring it up. We remember this is what happened or this is what was going on. This is what was established. This is what was commanded. Leviticus is a very important book when we're looking at the New Testament. It's referenced probably, I think one theologian said, about 40 times within the New Testament. When we're looking at uh, the great uh, passage in Matthew where Jesus says, what is the greatest, or when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, being. That comes from Deuteronomy 6. Then he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. That is repeated by other New Testament writers as well. That is directly from the book of Leviticus. When we read in the New Testament, when the Lord says, or when they're quoting the Lord saying, I am holy, be holy, that's coming from Leviticus. There are a number of things to look at when it comes to this book, but this is, this is not a book that is a favorite uh, often by Christians. If you were to list, as one, one gentleman had pointed out, if you list the, the books of the Bible in the order of your favorites, Leviticus isn't going to be in the top 10. It's not going to be in the top 20. It's going to be probably within the last 10 because it's just not a book that we look at. And it's a shame that we don't because this is the book that emphasizes above really any other book of the, of the Scriptures, the holiness of God. This is a book that is all about the holiness of God. Through all the laws that is being given in this book, this is the book that emphasizes, be holy for I am holy. This is why these things are given. In order to establish to the people of God what is necessary in order to worship, what is necessary in order to come before Him in a favorable way to walk before Him. After bringing the people out of Egypt, as we've been over, as Moses has done, they have established um, a number of different items that will eventually go into the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is being constructed. And really, Leviticus really begins with answering the question, as you're reading in, in Exodus, and you're reading all the things to prepare for the tabernacle, and the establishing of the tabernacle, and and the erecting of the tabernacle, 
Leviticus really begins with the question that is implied by what we're getting ready to read is, how can man be right with God? That's really the question. How can man be right with God? Because sin has separated us from God. One of Job's friends actually asked that question in Job chapter 4, verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? How can man come before God? What needs to occur in order that man may come? The very first thing that Moses addresses through the Lord, of course, in this, this first passage is the necessity of a sacrifice. That's how man can be right with God. How man may come before God is through the necessity of having a sacrifice. That's what he establishes here in the first chapter. The need for sacrifice. The need for a life to be taken in place of another. That's what this is all about. The establishing of the sacrificial system answers the question, how can man be right with God? This is the means that must take place, but it brings to light as well an awareness of what is separating man from God. You know, it's such a disservice to tell people that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. At what point do we then tell them that this God who supposedly loves them in the state that they are, what point do we say you're actually separated from him? Well, how can I be separated from the one who loves me, who is for me, who has a great plan for my life? How is it I'm separated from him if, if he loves me? That's why it's a disservice to tell people that. Because the realization of sin that separates us before God is what then the, the Spirit of God uses to, to bring that awareness and awaken us to the mercy of God and, and to the grace of God. That's what's going on here. That realization of sin, God's grace being extended, and His mercy being extended, that, awakened, that, 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 that spiritual awakening that takes place through this act of worship, of, of clinging to the Lord in faith and, and clinging to His mercy, that's what, that's what this portion of Scripture does for us. Awakens us to these very truths and these, very, these realities. That's why it's a shame that we don't look to these books. That we don't that we don't dig in to see the character of God that is on display for us throughout the law books. It also helps us to establish the need for God to reveal what is actually pleasing in His sight and to reveal certain characteristics about Himself by writing these things down. If Man was able to come to the knowledge of God left to himself by his own intuition. There would be no need for God to write anything down about himself. If man may offer sacrifices to God to appease him by his own intuition and by his own ideas, then there would be no need for God to write this down to say, no, this is how you come before me. So there is that, 
those, those specifics that are established here to give us the understanding of the character of God and what is necessary to come into his presence. These books are important. They're books, again, that we often ignore, but they are books that we need to be digging into. These are books that we need to be giving our attention to, giving our hearts to. This is the inspired word of God. We don't see the relevance in some of these things. And there are, there are laws in here that we, we look at and we say, well, that's not really applicable to us. The principle of what he's saying absolutely is. And so it is necessary for us to look in here. And I pray that we will see the importance of, of books like Leviticus as we work our way through this first chapter, which really establishes the whole need for sacrifice and points to the one true sacrificial lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. He's all in this here. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> we'll read the whole chapter, but we'll focus on the first nine verses. Let us hear what the inspired, authoritative, infallible word of the living God says. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. <clears throat> he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put on the altar and <clears throat> shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the sweat over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock, of the, the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering... He shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into pieces with its head and its sweat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar 
on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that in your great plan, your plan of redemption, you made a way that we may escape your wrath and escape your justice by providing a lamb, the lamb. Thank you, Father, for all that he accomplished for us. And may we see this particular passage point to him and demonstrate to us the importance of all that he did as it brings to mind his, his atonement, as it brings to mind his, his mediating work. Father, give us understanding as best as we can, and may the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts and stir our hearts with greater adoration for you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we begin the book of Leviticus. Really not much of an introduction other than the Lord speaks from the tent of meeting to Moses and says, tell the people this. Now, before this, and you could go back to Exodus chapter 33, there was, there was a, a tent that was called the tent of meeting. It was, it was a tent that was outside the camp, outside the camp, not in the midst of it, in which the Lord would appear to Moses. Moses would go into the tent of meeting and speak to the Lord. The Lord was separated from the camp. It was a temporary dwelling. But as you work through Leviticus, or excuse me, through Exodus, you see the erecting of what is known as the tabernacle in the midst of his people. In the camp. The Lord will dwell with his people. But in order for him to dwell with his people, there are certain things that need to be established. There are acts of worship that need to be established. There is commands and statutes that need to be established for the people to know how they may approach the holy God who is in our midst. And so the Lord says here to Moses, speaking to him from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle now, it's erected. He says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. Now, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, you would enter into the tabernacle, you would see the table of showbread, you would see the altar of incense, and then you would see the veil. Behind the veil is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And it is said that where the wings of the cherubim that were on the Ark, where they would touch, was referred to as the mercy seat. The Lord speaks to Moses from the mercy seat. From the place of mercy and grace, his very character that he declared to Moses back in Exodus 33 and 34, you see the, the, that gracious character of God being put on display here to say, this is my, this is, my grace is extended, but this is how you must come to receive my grace. Because it goes back to this, what we've been talking about. Sin has so separated us from God that there, there needs to be 
something to, to intervene, something to occur to bring us both together. And for the children of Israel, this is what the sacrificial system was for. There is hostility between natural man and God, and this is what is needed, a sacrifice, in order to bring the two together. Man, because of the fall, because he is now inclined to wickedness, he's inclined to evil, he does it naturally. You don't have to teach people how to sin, it comes natural to them. Because our mind is fallen, our wills are fallen, our emotions are fallen, they are inclined to wickedness. They are inclined to wickedness, and as a result, there is enmity and hostility between man and God, because God is holy and God is pure. And God doesn't tolerate injustice. He doesn't tolerate rebellion. If he did, in the sense that many people think God should and just say, well, I forgive you, then he wouldn't be just. His justice cries out for punishment. That is the, the, that's the very problem of how man is separated from God. He's separated from his goodness. He's separated from his grace and his love. That's why for people that are separated from God, it is not at all proper to say to them in their natural unregenerate state, God loves you. Is there a way in which God loves even the unregenerate? Yes, in his common grace, does he love the unregenerate in the same love that he has for his own son or those that are in the son? The answer is no. We are separated from God. There is no covenant loyal love from God to those who are unregenerate. That love is only reserved for those that are in Christ. That is something we need to understand. Now, this, looking at this whole scenario, the Lord says to Moses, speak to them and tell them this. So the Lord is establishing the parameters by which man may come. Man cannot come any way that he desires. He cannot come by his own, his own ideas and to say, well, I think the Lord is going to be pleased with me if I do this or I approach him in this way. The Lord says, I set the standard of how you may come. So this idea of come as you are, it's because of who we are that the wrath of God abides on us. So we don't come as we are. We come in the sense of we have nothing to offer. That's, that's a true statement, absolutely. We have nothing to offer. We come to God and we approach Him having nothing but Christ. That's all we got. And in the recognition of having Christ, we, we have that recognition of, I have sinned before a holy God. This is my only hope. And so in this way we come. But the idea of come as you are, that you may approach God and God will accept your worship regardless of the condition of your life, that's not here. It's not in the scripture. And actually, when you go back to that wonderful passage of Isaiah 6, 
and you see how Isaiah has that magnificent vision of the Lord. And he calls down a divine curse upon himself. The Lord does not say anything to him. There is no command by the Lord. There is no you know, commissioning him to do anything until the angel takes the coal from the altar and touches it to his lips. And then there's the declaration, this has now touched your lips and your sins are forgiven. Then you hear from the Lord to say, whom shall we send and who will go for us? The commissioning of Isaiah then takes place after that. There had to be a cleansing in order to come before the Lord. There isn't the come as you are, the come any way that you desire. There is the come in the way that the Lord has said to come. And what are we talking about in that? We're talking about worship there as well, right? We worship in the way that God says, this is how I will be worshipped. This is how you will ascribe worth to me, ascribe glory to me in the way that I have said. This is all the Lord establishing these particular standards of worship. When we look at the worship within the New Testament, that's why we, we do what is written. Because we know what is written is pleasing to the Lord. The clever ideas that people have of, of trying to, to create atmospheres of worship, that that lessens the infinite value of God, that we have to have something other than just the knowledge of Him to engage us in worship. We have to have something other than that, that reality of God's grace and His love that is found in Christ. We have to have something else. We have to create something else. We do what is written. You know, the idea that the Lord is so specific in the Old Testament and then all of a sudden, when you get to the New Testament, it's like, eh. Does that make any sense that the Lord would do that? Well, now that my son's come, it's hmm. however you want. No. Because the son has come, there is an even greater understanding of the infinite value of God and a greater understanding of the holiness of God as a result of the son coming. So we do what is written. So the Lord is setting the standard here. The Lord is setting the parameters. Man isn't deciding to do this. I doubt very seriously that man would want to decide to do this. Because he says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering, which was a very common offering. And actually you go to um, Numbers chapter 28. And there's the establishing by the Lord that burnt offerings were to occur every single day. In the morning and at twilight. Every day. On the Sabbath, there was more. This is continual. Every day, animals being sacrificed in worship to God. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it. A male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. 
this is a very bloody act of worship, and it is an act of worship. This isn't just going through certain you know, things that the Lord has said to do. This is, this is engaging in worship because in the act in which is being performed, there's the recognition that my sin has so separated me from God that the life of another is necessary. Something has to die that I may be accepted before him. An animal. From the herd, it could be, it could be from the herd of, of the cattle, it can be uh, of sheep or of the goats, or it can be of these birds. And there's more on that as we get there. But it has to be a male without defect. <clears throat> there has to be, without any bodily faults, an animal offered, specifically, of the ones that the Lord has set here. There's no lame animals to be offered. There's no sickly animals to be offered. Has to be the best from the flock or from the herd. Must be the best. Why? Why the best? Why, does it, why, why isn't the Lord just you know, okay with whatever? Because, again, it lessens the infinite value of the Lord that you would prefer to keep this animal because of how much it would be worth to you before somebody else if you sell it other than giving it to me who is of infinite value there's that lesson that is there to show how great and magnificent and majestic and the one who is of infinite worth that the Lord is. You give the one without blemish, no defect, the best that you can offer. And you give the best that you can offer based on, really, your income. That's why there's some to choose from. You can bring it out of the cattle. If you can't afford that, you can, you can offer a sheep or a goat. If you can't afford that, you can offer turtle doves or you can offer young pigeons. If you remember in the New Testament when you have the birth of Christ and you have his parents going to present him before the Lord and, and they bring a sacrifice, they brought a, the sacrifice of, of, of the birds because they were poor. And so based on what you were able to do, there was these to choose from. But you gave the best that you had. So it wasn't as if, if you had a lot of money that you would say, I'm just going to offer the birds because they're not going to cost me as much. No. You offer the best that you have based on how the Lord has blessed you. Because it is a demonstration, again, of how worthy He is above everything else. So there's that lesson there for the worshiper. We bring the best that we have to the Lord because He's worthy of the best that we have because anything that we have is His anyway. Then there's that recognition again on the part of the worshiper of when He, when he lays His hand on the animal. This is the worshiper doing this, by the way. The sons of Aaron don't come in until after the animal is killed. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of this animal. It is signifying the transfer of sin to the animal. It is a demonstration of that. It's, it's, it's symbolizing that, if you will. This animal is now going to die because of my shortcomings, my sin, my transgression. 
This animal's life is going to be taken in place of me. I deserve it, but the animal is going to die. So the worshiper lays his hand on the head of the animal, signifying this very reality, and then cuts the animal's throat, kills the animal. The blood is collected. The blood is offered up by the priest to show that a life had been taken in place of the worshiper. Again, this is a very bloody act. But because it was so, it was a reminder to the worshiper of what has alienated him from God and the necessity of what it takes to come into his presence. There was that awakening within the heart of the worshiper of God's mercy and God's grace and his provision they may come. So there's that, that sacrifice without blemish. There's the transfer of the guilt. We see that. But here's what it brings about. He lays his hand on the head of the, the burnt offering that it may, may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf, to make a covering. And that's all that it did. To make a covering. No, it means to expiate, means to cover. One writer says it does not signify to cause a sin to have not occurred. That is important to recognize. That these animal sacrifices does not, did not signify that there was the removal of, of the guilt as if it never happened. If that had occurred, then there wouldn't be no need to continue to do it. He says, but to cover it before the Lord, to take away its power of coming in between God and themselves. That's what it did. It made a covering for that very purpose, to take away its power, sin's power, of coming in between God and themselves. That's what occurred during this act of worship. A covering. But it was a covering that needed to be done every day by the priest as they were offering burnt offerings. Once a year, specifically on the Day of Atonement, for all the people, there's that continual reminder of sin on the part of the worshiper. My sin has not been dealt with. Now, why wouldn't that have been dealt with? If you're slaughtering all these animals and, and lives are being taken in place of yours, why wasn't this good enough? Well, just to think about it, it wasn't animals that rebelled against the Lord. They're not a proper representative of the ones who rebelled. That's why it's not good enough. It was never good enough. The idea that this took away sin is not at all true because the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sin. They were temporary. It was a temporary sacrificial system that was put in place by God that the worshiper may come in view of something else, of a greater sacrifice. 
Now, as the worshiper comes to do this, notice there is no kickback here that is permitted. There is no scenario in which the worshiper says, I really just don't want to do that. There's nothing like that here. It was commanded. It was necessary. This is the only way that the people of God in or under the old covenant may approach him. That's it. There's no other clever idea that we may come up with. The Lord says, this is it. And you will do it. But here's the thing, though. If you have the worshiper who has that recognition of their sin and, and clinging to the Lord in faith and clinging to his grace and his mercy, th there's, there's that desire on the part of the worshiper. Yes, Lord, I understand the severity of my own sin and I understand as best as finite people can. I understand how, how infinitely offensive that my sin is to you. And so I offer up this, this animal this innocent animal that hasn't done anything in rebellion against you, I offer it to you. So there is that, that element of worship in which there is that engaging of the heart on the part of the worshiper through the recognition of all the things that are taking place, all the blood, all the, the cutting of the animal in pieces, which was the next thing. They would have to skin the animal, cut it up into pieces, Aaron and, and the, the sons of Aaron, the priests, they would then arrange it on the bronze altar that was just outside of the tabernacle. And it was an offering that was, that was given unto the Lord, the entirety of it. They would wash the entrails, they would wash the hind legs. And if you think of that, you know, the hind legs, you know, catching up most of the dirt and the muck and all of that sort of thing. And so there's that idea too, the washing of the sacrifice, making it perfectly clean and then offering it unto the Lord. Holy up to the Lord. There was no, this is not one of those offerings in which people offer a por portion of it and then they maybe give the rest of it to the priest or they themselves eat it before the Lord. This is one that is given wholly to the Lord. Every bit of it was given unto the Lord. And as the, as the worshiper performed everything that was necessary on his part, and then the priest, they take it and they go up to the bronze altar and they arrange the pieces as, the, as it catches up in smoke. It's said to be a soothing aroma to the Lord. A soothing aroma unto the Lord. It was pleasing in the sight of God but it pointed to a greater reality, pictured someone greater. And in view of that, perhaps it was that in itself, a soothing aroma to the Lord in recognition of what the Son of God would do. Now, <clears throat> some things to look at because he goes into taking the sacrifice from the herd or taking it from the flocks, you may do either one, but it must be the best of what you have. There is, there is that reality then of understanding that, that worship is costly. 
Worship is costly. Because it was to be the best that was offered to the Lord. Not the things, not, not the animals that you could do without. That's a sickly animal. That's a lame animal. It's not going to bring me no money anyway. It's not going to do anything for our family to help us along. So let's offer it instead. It was because the children of Israel began to do that, that that strong indictment by Malachi comes into play. Because that's exactly what they were doing. And so judgment was, was being given, was being announced through Malachi. No. Worship is costly. We give the best that we have to honor the Lord. Not the leftover, which is what we often do. We give the Lord our leftover time or just a, a little bit of, of, of time that we offer when we're thinking about other things. So we're not even engaged in what is taking place during the time of worship or what is supposed to be worship. When we, I mean, if you think of this, you think of all the elements of worship that we do together just on the Lord's Day. We enter into this place with the recognition, I am coming before our holy God, that he meets his people in a special way. And that's what he did in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, by the way. The Lord is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But he would, he would meet them in a special way in the tent of meeting at the tabernacle, then at the temple. And the Lord meets with a special, in a special way with his people when they are gathered collectively. So we recognize that as we enter into this place. As we hear the word read, it's not something that we just kind of sit back and wait till it's done, the reading of the word. It's not a time in which we bow our heads and we just close our eyes and we're thinking of what is it we got to do later? What are we going to eat later? Ah, I got to wash them clothes when I get home. Ah. This is what I'm going to end up having to do at work. And then we just wait for the amen to know when we can raise our head. When we sing, we're not just waiting for the song to be done. At least we shouldn't be. To just not be engaged in what's happening. When we're hearing the preaching of the scripture, regardless of who's behind the pulpit. It's not just to sit here and and to zone off into any other thing but what is actually happening. When we come before the Lord, this is not offering Him our best. When we come before the Lord, we say, the world is out, I am here with my brothers and sisters, and I am engaged. And when our minds do start to wander, we catch ourselves and we pull ourselves back in. That when we engage in prayer... Forever, whoever is leading us in prayer, it is, I'm engaged in prayer. I'm hearing what the worshiper is saying on behalf of the people. I'm saying in my heart, amen. I'm even adding things in as I'm hearing what he's saying. Yes, Lord, and this, how magnificent are you? I'm engaged. My heart is engaged. I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm pouring out my heart. Regardless of who's leading it. I'm not just waiting for the amen that I can raise my head. When I see the songs and we're, we're in the time of singing. In the time of praising him with our lips. I'm not just reading words. 
I'm, I'm engaged in the truths that are being given through those words. Because those truths are from the scripture. And what better thing can we do than to take what God has said and sing it right back to him? How magnificent is that? Lord, this is what you said about yourself. Let me sing it back to you. I'm not just waiting. My mind and my heart are engaged reading over these lyrics. And in my heart, I'm saying, Amen. Amen. When I'm sitting out here, we're all sitting out here in the pews and we're we're listening to someone read the scripture. And they're reading the word of God. This is part of worship, the public reading of scripture. That my heart and my mind are engaged as I am hearing what the writer of scripture is saying, what he's saying about himself, what he's saying about the Lord, what he's calling us to do. Whatever the passage is calling for, I want to be engaged. I want my ears to be open. I want my heart to be open. I want to pray as I'm hearing the scripture to the spirit of God. Fill me with what he is saying. Apply this to me as I'm hearing it read. I'm not talking about preaching when I'm hearing it read. Because this is the living word of God. When I hear the preaching of the word, I'm hearing the exposition of scripture. My mind and my heart, again, this is all a mind and heart. This is will. This is every ounce of who we are and our being is engaged in this act of worship. Yes, give me more. There are times I'm sitting there when Jason's up here and I'm like, give me some more of that. I need more. How magnificent is that? What is being said to us? What is being preached to us? And then, then the calling of us in light of all that we've learned, the, the, the result of this, the consequence of it, the calling is this. And our hearts shouldn't be, I was with you until you asked me to do something. My heart should then be, yes, that, that is exactly what I need to do. I recognize that I'm not doing that. I need to do that. Lord, you're, you're worth all things. How can I not do that? How can I not want to do that? Oh, Lord, by the Spirit of God, help me to do that. This is giving him the best that we have. And more. Just the skim of the surface there, isn't it? But to offer him the best that we have. Our lives should be offering the best that we have. In the way that we engage others, in the way that we do, we, we, we perform our jobs. I want to perform uh, my job as best as I can because the Lord has provided this for me. This is the means that God has provided that I may care for my family, that I can provide for them. Let me not be slothful in it. Let me not be indifferent to it. The Lord has provided this for me. When I'm engaging with others, and there are times in which some things come to the tip of my tongue because I'm aggravated. Oh, Lord, keep me from bringing dishonor to you because I am a reflection of you. Let me not put you to shame. You can throw out whatever scenario you want there. 
your very life should be a living and holy sacrifice unto the Lord. And when we fail in doing that, there should be that conviction on our heart to say, I didn't give you my best. I made whatever the scenario was about me. I didn't make it about you. You know, as a parent, that's something that is very easy to do. To make it about us instead of about him. I have had my times absolutely a failure when it comes to the discipline of my children. Fail. And I knew I did. But that shouldn't be with its, this scenario, whether it's another scenario in the time of your workplace or among your friends or your family, regardless, there should never be a time in which we justify ourselves in not doing our best. There's been times I've had to go to people and say, I'm sorry. I'm not even going to try to justify myself. Times I've had to go to my children and say, I'm sorry. I didn't give you my best. I was wrong. Why? Why do we do that? Because we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God in every part of our life. Every part. Why? Because worship is costly. And we give Him the best, not just on the Lord's Day, not just on Wednesday when we gather collectively, but we give Him the best every other day of the week too, as best as we can. We strive to do it right. We strive to honor Him in everything. And when we fail, we cling to Him in mercy and grace. And this is the beauty of it all. The very thing that we repeat often before we take the bread and the cup, we have an advocate with the Father. His mercies are new every morning. Worship is costly. It was very costly to the people of God then in light of all that they had to do in order to come before God that they would be accepted. And very quickly, and we're leading up to it, it's there. Our minds should already... Our minds should already be turning. That this is absolutely pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of this. This animal that's being offered here, whether it's from the herd or the flock, whether it's the birds, these are tame animals. They're not wild animals. You're not having to fight this animal in order to try to bring it into the place in which you're going to offer it as a sacrifice. These are animals that are being led by you. These are animals that aren't kicking against you. They're being led to the place of their death. The scripture tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. 
everything that happened to the Lord Jesus the night in which he was arrested, in the mockery of a trial that he endured, he went through all of that willingly. He didn't kick against the pricks, as what is said of Paul. He didn't try to fight back. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who willingly went to his own slaughter. That's why these animals are tame animals, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to be willing to do this. He's the willing Lamb of God. So the sacrifices that are being offered, are, that's what they're pointing to. The transfer of guilt from the worshiper to the animal, that's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about how Christ is our substitute. And with passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what that's pointing to. You could say this, that the Father transferred to the Son the sins of all the people, laid it on Him. Our guilt and our shame, our sin, our wickedness, our transgressions, everything, He laid it on the Son, transferred it to Him in the sense of He's holding Him accountable for everybody over here. So there's that idea of substitution. There's that reality of satisfaction. That because of the worshiper performing this act and the soothing aroma going up to the Lord, the Lord was satisfied. When the Son of God came, and as the writer of Hebrews says, He, he went in through the veil and the tabernacle not made with hands. He offered Himself through the eternal Spirit unto the Lord, having done it once for all time. The Lord was satisfied in the offering of the Son. Permanently. Not just temporary, as these were. The Son offered Himself once for all time, and He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having completed His work, no more sacrifices to offer. That's why these weren't good enough. It was pointing to him because he would be the perfect representative. He is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. The second person of the triune God added humanity to his being and became a servant. Perfectly obeying the law of God, having no spot or blemish or anything, the perfect lamb. And as the representative of God, because he is God, and as a true representative of mankind, because he is truly man, having taken on human flesh, he was able to be the only mediator between God and men to reconcile us together. The fact that this animal had to be washed and had to be perfectly clean, pointing again to the sinlessness of our Lord Jesus. The only acceptable sacrifice. All of this, all of this points to Him. 
and praise the Lord for this. That the offering of the Lord Jesus was for the rich and the poor, for all. All classes of people Christ gave his life for. And this is seen within passages like this that give us a clearer understanding of the very nature of Christ, the character of Christ, the humility of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, and the satisfaction of Christ's offering to the Father. Christ is all through these books. That's why it is so vital that we we go back to, to study them so that when we get to the New Testament passages like we opened up with Peter. It wasn't silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of a lamb, Christ. When you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and, and you're, you're hearing the announcement, Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, he is overcome and is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And John turns and he sees. He doesn't see... A lion, he sees a lamb. A lamb as it had been slain. When you come to those passages in the earlier part of John, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What are they all pointing to? They're all pointing back to the sacrificial system that was put in place as a temporary atonement that pointed to the greater. Why do we love our neighbor as ourself? Because God is holy. And that's to be holy before him, to walk in that way. Those times that it's referenced in the New Testament, it's in this book that emphasizes the holiness of God. Let us give our attention to these. Let us make these part of our studies rather than the more common books, which we love. We love Romans. We love John. Love the other Gospels. We love Ephesians. We, I don't know if there's a New Testament book that we don't. That's the thing. If you were to take the 66 books of the Scriptures and, and uh, write them down in order of your favorites, you probably most likely have all 27 of the New Testament books before there's many of the Old Testament books that come into play. Really and truly, it shouldn't be like that. The Bible that the apostles preached from, that Christ preached from, is the Old Testament. Or the First Testament. One of the professors at the Master's Seminary, he would not at all call it the Old Testament. Nope. It's the First Testament. He didn't want it all to, he made it sound like, uh, or to him rather, it was kind of a pet peeve of him. It was like we were bringing dishonor to the Old Testament by calling it the Old Testament. It's the First Testament, he says. But without the First Testament, you don't have the Savior. So we need to give our attention to the Old Testament as well. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Him we have the forgiveness of sins. That in Him... We have redemption through his blood. Father, not one of us here 
are deserving of the grace and mercy that you provided in him. All of us have our battles. All of us have our times of failure. But thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that in him we have an advocate. The one who comes alongside us to mediate. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for everything that he said, everything that he did, everything that he fulfilled, everything that he is doing now on behalf of his people. I pray, Father, for all of us that the realization of what it is that Christ has done for us and recognition of who we once were would, would be a, a, a reality to us, that we would live in view of that, that our appreciation and our adoration would be great and that our lives would reflect that in every part of our life. Thank you again that you don't leave us as orphans, but that you have granted to us the Spirit of God who brings about these changes in us according to the Scripture. Father, to you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.